Let me tell you a story. Podcast number 74. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Age Never mind it is a how truth long it You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. In podcast number 73, we took a break from reading Treasure Island in Winds of Wyoming, and we read a variety of other works instead. But today we're back with chapters from our serialized books. I believe that's a word, although it sounds a bit like a breakfast food. Anyway, in addition to those excerpts, we have a chapter from A Dark Moon Rises by Montana author Sandra Kopp. If you like to feel hair rise on the back of your neck, her fantasy series, Dark Lords of Epthelion, is a collection you're sure to enjoy. And now we'll begin with A Dark Moon Rises by Sandra Kopp. Chapter 1 At midnight, on a moonless night, the serpent hovered over the sleeping foothills, his blood-red gaze riveted on the tiny hamlet nestled amid the rolling hills. Behind him, the mighty Alpenfell Mountains thrust jagged peaks through a cloudy mantle to pierce the starlit sky, their brooding silence broken only by the wheezing hisses of the serpent's labored breathing. The serpent smiled sardonically. Foolish mortals, their arrogance amused him. They deemed themselves heroes. Yet, the true heroes had perished in battle while most of these cowards trembled in mountain caves. Sleek, fat, and consumed by greed, they lusted for wealth and the blood of the innocent, selling their souls to attain their desire. Obliging slaves of the demonic host. The serpent sniffed, his breathing deepened then, grating and sighing as he sucked and expelled the frosty air. He sought not these paltry swaggers, but the Nimbian with the brown left eye and green right eye, whose searing memory sent an ice-cold rush through the serpent's writhing coils. His lips curled back as he released a snarl that echoed through the canyons and spewed venomous rain on the ground below. Where is he? The serpent scanned the landscape, his scaly head bobbing gently from side to side as he drifted ahead. He circled the village, turned northeast, and stopped. A long hiss whistled through his teeth as he reared his head back and spread his magnificent hood. On a verdant hillside several miles distant lay a grand estate, its crowning glory the spacious house built of the snow-white stone favored by Nimbians. Red eyes glinting and fangs dripping venom, the serpent glided toward it. Eris Marchant, the only Argonian to enter the black realm and return unscathed with his sanity and integrity intact, the only man able to slay Ryadoc, greatest of all the sorcerer kings, embodied by the serpent himself and deemed immortal. And afterward, this troubler had routed the serpent and reduced his castle and kingdom to rubble. But Marchant had made a fatal mistake. For the love of a woman, the famous and beautiful warrior queen of Hall Ronfell, he had renounced his Argonian commission, making himself as vulnerable as any other man. 
The serpent reached this state and drifted to a stop, narrowly regarding the house below. How peacefully the Nimbian slept, with his precious warrior queen enfolded in his arms. How sweet his dreams since the serpent's defeat. Ah, but evil never dies. I shall possess you, heiress Marchant. The chains that bound you in Ryadoc's dungeon shall seem as nothing compared to my bonds. However, you will not consider them bonds. Indeed, you shall embrace and cherish them as tools benefiting those you love. But many will die on your account, and those you know and love will despise you as a charlatan and a murderer. And when you discover the truth and attempt your escape, ah, such sweet revenge will be mine. So have I spoken, so shall it be. The serpent drew in his hood and glided away. His raspy hisses grew fainter, finally evaporating as he crossed the mountaintops, and silence settled into the foothills once more. Don's first rays stained the horizon as Eris topped the hill. He reined in his horse, studied the red-streaked sky, and frowned. An ill omen, Barada, he murmured, stroking his charger's neck. The chestnut stallion tossed his head. Eris turned and stared down at his estate, still enshrouded in shadow, his probing gaze searching every aspect of trees, barn, paddock, and house. Someone had watched during the night. A malevolent entity invaded his dreams, filling his subconsciousness with hollow whispers. Even now its odor lingered, an unsettling mixture of smoke and sulfur so faint that only those possessing finely honed senses would notice. The fighting has stopped, but the evil that spawned it remains. Images of his harrowing escape from Castle Ryadoc flooded Eris's memory. Prone and winded, he'd laid on the stony ground below the tower from which he'd jumped. A serpentine face glared down from the top tower window, its lips twisted in a grotesque sneer. The terrible mouth opened as the creature reared back and then plunged toward him. Somehow, Eris had summoned his ebbing strength and rolled aside just before the creature slammed into the ground, only inches away. Beads of sweat glistened on Eris's forehead. He steadied his breathing, trying to calm his pounding heart. I knew the creature did not die, but I refused to remain in Argonian and risk sharing Ryadoc's fate. He squared his shoulders. Though I no longer possess mystical powers, I am not helpless. Throughout the ages, men of character have prevailed over Anhopta, as will I. Teptiel teems with such men. I do not stand alone. Eris surveyed the tranquil countryside, and despite his foreboding, relaxed. The emerald hills rolled out before him, while to the north the towering Alpenfell Mountains stood guard. A soft wind teased his tawny hair. Cheery meadowlarks filled his ears with song. Honorable men now ruled the land, and in Nimbia, the Arganian mystics guarded the corridor, that transcendental portal through which the serpent must pass to enter the world of men. Yes, our times would come. But each new dawn brought renewed hope, and the light of day illumined a bountiful land, teeming with life and beauty beyond imagination. A resounding boom broke the stillness. Peals of thunder echoed through the canyons and reverberated among the austere peaks. Eris turned his startled gaze to the Alpenfells, now glowing crimson in the morning sun. 
Mitrovnia, the tallest peak before him, had shrugged off an icy layer, and now jagged shards spilled down the cliffs, disintegrating into filmy mist that floated up to settle on the mountain's brawny shoulders again. A sharp crack followed the abating thunder. Puffy clouds erupted just below the summit on Mitrovnia's east side. Eris watched, transfixed, as glacier chunks the size of cottages plunged 2,000 feet and exploded on the mountain's unforgiving flanks. The canyons rang as shattered debris tumbled into ravines or continued down the mountainside. Finally, the mountain stilled. A dying rubble rolled off the distant peak and evaporated into silence. Eris smiled. Ah, Barada, he murmured, how that sound stirs me. As a youth in Eri, I heard it often, yet never witnessed the cause because I dwelt above it. Barada sighed heavily and champed his bit, pawing the ground with a powerful foreleg. Eris chuckled. I know. To you it's just noise. He absently tasseled the stallion's mane, his gaze still riveted on the mountains. Bear with me, my friend, as I savor this moment, ere it passes forever. Before he finished speaking, a shrill whistle drew his attention to the four wires tending his cattle on the hillside behind him. Barada neighed a response, and at Eris's urging, set off at a brisk trot. A bright-eyed young man riding a striking black-and-white pony rode to meet him. He wore the loose blue breeches, tan tunic, and wide-brimmed straw hat of the wire herders. A red kerchief encircled his neck, and a long dagger was strapped to his belt, a coiled rope to his saddle. He smiled broadly. Morning, Mr. Eris. Morning, Ben. Eris nodded toward the reddened sky. What do you make of that? Bayan followed Eris's gaze and soberly shook his head. Not good. Approaching storm? Bayan pursed his lips. Maybe. Something happened last night. What? I don't know. He glanced around at the cattle. The cows got restless around midnight, but none of us saw anything. No bears, wolves, or cats. Not even tracks. After a while, the cows settled down again. He shrugged. Hmm. Eris shrugged, too. Well, keep an eye out. He smiled then. Are you going to the gathering in a couple weeks? Bayan laughed shortly and shook his head. I don't know, Mr. Eris. I'm no good around women, and these later and girls probably wouldn't like me anyway. Be different if more wires would come, but... His smile vanished and he stopped, his widened eyes riveted on the mountains behind them. Eris turned. A chill shuddered down his spine. The sun had risen higher and the mountains had exchanged their crimson hues for snowy white. A malefic shadow resembling the head of a hooded serpent crept across the gleaming cliffs, stopping when it reached Mitrovnia's broad face. Two glistening blood-red eyes appeared in the shadow, narrowing into menacing slits as the mouth gaped open. Eris scanned the heavens. Two puffy clouds, neither resembling a snake, hung benignly in the azure sky. With bated breath, he faced the mountains again. The dreadful mouth had closed, and as the eyes faded, the monstrous visage regarded him with a look of unmistakable smugness. An ominous whisper filled the canyons as the shadows separated into inky pools and trickled down the mountainsides. Eris found his voice first. You're right, he whispered. Not good.
Here's Treasure Island. At the end of Chapter 24, our main character, Jim, went from his coracle to the schooner and realized that he was left without retreat onto the Hispaniola. His coracle went to the bottom. Now, Chapter 25, I Strike the Jolly Roger. I had scarce gained a position on the bowsprit when the flying jib flapped and filled upon the other tack with a report like a gun. The schooner trembled to her keel under the reverse, but next moment, the other sails still drawing, the jib flapped back again and hung idle. This had nearly tossed me off into the sea, and now I lost no time, crawled back along the bowsprit, and tumbled head foremost on the deck. I was on the lee side of the forecastle, and the mainsail, which was still drawing, concealed me from a certain portion of the afterdeck. Not a soul was to be seen. The planks, which had not been swabbed since the mutiny, bore the print of many feet, and an empty bottle, broken by the neck, tumbled to and fro like a living thing in the scuppers. Suddenly the Hispaniola came right into the wind. The jibs behind me cracked aloud. The rudder slammed too. The whole ship gave a sickening heave and shudder, and at the same moment the main boom swung inboard, the sheet groaning in the blocks, and showed me the lee afterdeck. There were the two watchmen, sure enough, red cap on his back, as stiff as a handspike, with his arms stretched out like those of crucifix, and his teeth showing through his open lips, Israel hands propped against the bulwarks, his chin on his chest, his hands lying open before him on the deck, his face as white under its tan as a tallow candle. For a while the ship kept bucking and sidling like a vicious horse, the sails filling, now on one tack, now on another, and the boom swinging to and fro till the mast groaned aloud under the strain. Now and again, too, there would come a cloud of light sprays over the bulwark and a heavy blow of the ship's bows against the swell. So much heavier weather was made of it by this great rigged ship than by my homemade lopsided coracle, now gone to the bottom of the sea. At every jump of the schooner, Red Cap slipped to and fro, but what was ghastly to behold, neither his attitude nor his fixed teeth disclosing grin was any way disturbed by this rough usage. At every jump, too, hands appeared still more to sink into himself and settle down upon the deck, his feet sliding ever the farther out, and the whole body canting towards the stern, so that his face became, little by little, hid from me, and at last I could see nothing beyond his ear and the frayed ringlet of one whisker. At the same time, I observed, around both of them, splashes of dark blood upon the planks, and began to feel sure they had killed each other in their drunken wrath. While I was thus looking and wondering, in a calm moment when the ship was still, Israel's hands turned partly round, and with a low moan writhed himself back to the position in which I had seen him first. The moan which told of pain and deadly weakness, and the way in which his jaw hung open went right to my heart. But when I remembered the talk I had overheard from the apple barrel, all pity left me. I walked aft till I reached the mainmast. Come aboard, Mr. Hands, I said ironically. He rolled his eyes round heavily, but he was too far gone to express surprise. All he could do was to utter one word. Brandy! It occurred to me there was no time to lose, and dodging the boom as it once more lurched across the deck, I slipped aft and down the companion stairs into the cabin. 
It was such a scene of confusion as you can hardly fancy. All the lock-fast places had been broken open in quest of the chart. The floor was thick with mud, where ruffians had sat down to drink or consult after waiting in the marshes round their camp. The bulkheads, all painted in clear white and beaded round with gilt, bore a pattern of dirty hands. Dozens of empty bottles clinked together in corners to the rolling of the ship. One of the doctor's medical books lay open on the table. Half the leaves gutted out, I suppose, for pipe lights. In the midst of all this, the lamp still cast a smoky glow, obscure and brown as umber. I went into the cellar. All the barrels were gone, and of the bottles, the most surprising number had been drunk out and thrown away. Certainly, since the mutiny began, not a man of them could ever have been sober. Foraging about, I found a bottle with some brandy left for hands, and for myself, I routed out some biscuit, some pickled fruits, a great bunch of raisins, and a piece of cheese. With these, I came on deck, put down my own stock behind the rudder head, and well out of the coxswain's reach, went forward to the water breaker, and had a good, deep drink of water. And then, and not till then, gave hands the brandy. He must have drunk a gill before he took the bottle from his mouth. Aye, said he, by thunder, but I wanted some of that. I had sat down already in my own corner and begun to eat. Much hurt? I asked him. He grunted, or rather, I might say, he barked. If that doctor was aboard, he said, I'd be right enough in a couple of turns. But I don't have no manner of luck, you see, and that's what's the matter with me. As for that swab, he's good and dead, he is, he added, indicating the man with the red cap. He weren't no seaman anyhow, and where a mott you have come from. Well, said I, I've come aboard to take possession of this ship, Mr. Hands, and you'll please regard me as your captain until further notice. He looked at me sourly enough, but said nothing. Some of the color had come back into his cheeks, though he still looked very sick and still continued to slip out and settle down as the ship banged about. By the by, I continued, I can't have these colors, Mr. Hands, and by your leave I'll strike em. Better none than these. And again, dodging the boom, I ran to the color lines, handed down their cursed black flag, and chucked it overboard. God save the king, said I, waving my cap, and there's an end to Captain Silver. He watched me keenly and slyly, his chin all the while on his breast. I reckon, he said at last, I reckon, Cap'n Hawkins, you'll kind of want to get ashore now. Suppose we talks. Why, yes, says I, with all my heart, Mr. Hands, say on. And I went back to my meal with a good appetite. This man, he began, nodding feebly at the corpse, O'Brien were his name, a rank Irelander, this man and me got the canvas on her, meaning for to sail her back. Well, he's dead now. He is. As dead as bilge. And who's to sail this ship? I don't see. Without I gives you a hint, you ain't that man, as far as I can tell. Now look here. You gives me food and drink, and an old scarf or anchor to tie my wound up. You do, and I'll tell you how to sail her. And that's about square all round, I take it. I'll tell you one thing, says I. I'm not going back to Captain Kidd's anchorage. I mean to get into North Inlet and beach her quietly there. To be sure you did, he cried. Why, I ain't such an infernal lubber after all. I can see, can't I? I've tried my fling, I have, and I've lost, and it's you who has the wind of me. North Inlet? Why, I haven't no choice, not I. 
I'd help you sail her up to execution dock, by thunder, so I would. Well, as it seemed to me, there was some sense in this. We struck our bargain on the spot. In three minutes I had the Hispaniola sailing easily before the wind along the coast of Treasure Island, with good hopes of turning the northern point ere noon, and beating down again as far as North Inlet before high water, when we might beach her safely and wait till a subsiding tide permitted us to land. Then I lashed the tiller and went below to my own chest, where I got a soft silk handkerchief of my mother's. With this, and with my aid, Hans bound up the great bleeding stab he had received in the thigh, and after he had eaten a little and had a swallow or two more of the brandy, he began to pick up visibly, sat straighter up, spoke louder and clearer, and looked in every way another man. The breeze served us admirably. We skimmed before it like a bird, the coast of the island flashing by, and the view changing every minute. Soon we were past the highlands and bowling beside low, sandy country, sparsely dotted with dwarf pines. And soon we were beyond that again, and had turned the corner of the rocky hill that ends the island on the north. I was greatly elated with my new command, and pleased with the bright, sunshiny weather and these different prospects of the coast. I had now plenty of water and good things to eat, and my conscience, which had smitten me hard for my desertion, was quieted by the great conquest I had made. I should, I think, have had nothing left me to desire but for the eyes of the coxswain as they followed me derisively about the deck, an odd smile that appeared continually on his face. It was a smile that had in it something both of pain and weakness, a haggard old man's smile. But there was, besides that, a grain of derision, a shadow of treachery in his expression as he craftily watched and watched and watched me at my work. I'm reading Winds of Wyoming again. This finishes chapter 21. After the deputies left, Mike climbed the ladder in the barn to the hayloft and sat on a bale, elbows on his knees, head in his hands. He pushed his hat to the back of his head and massaged his temples. His brain felt muddy and swollen, like the creek during spring runoff. He still hadn't gotten to the branding, hadn't checked fences, hadn't talked with the twins about hunting bison. Hadn't fixed his truck or receded the ATV damaged meadow. He hadn't. The happy sounds of children playing down at the pond drifted up the hill. He raised his gaze to look through the square opening at the front of the barn where their tractors lifted in the hay. He'd always loved the loft's bird's eye view, which spanned most of the ranch buildings as well as the Sierra Madres in the background. He chuckled, remembering the times he'd seen Matt coming and dropped in front of him when he walked into the barn and how his brother had jumped and screeched like a girl. Matt. What was he to think about the news clippings? Mike stared at the ceiling of exposed rafters, relishing the solitude and smell of the wood and hay, the rustlings of mice, the snorts and snuffles of the horses below. He didn't even mind the tart odor of dung. I should bring Kate up here. She'd love the view. Oh, when she could manage the ladder, and if she didn't go to jail... He rubbed his jaw. That wasn't fair. Every employee was innocent until proven guilty. Kate was as innocent as he was, even though she was obviously hiding something. Maybe it had something to do with the guy who broke into her cabin. But was that possible? 
Could there be a connection between him and Kate? And maybe Manuel? He wanted to believe in Kate, and he wanted Manuel to be innocent. And then there was the Cyrus problem. Could be the old guy ran off with the money. The timing was suspicious. Maybe he killed the bison. He'd never approved of the herd. But then, neither did the Clifford brothers. Rubbing his neck, he tilted his head. Someone was coming up the ladder. Mike, what are you doing up here? He glanced over his shoulder to see his mom, her chin level with the loft floor. Just thinking. Mind if I join you? He made room for her on the hay bale. She sat beside him. I've always loved the scene framed by that opening. She patted his arm. Sorry to interrupt you, but it is nice to have a private moment together. Yeah, doesn't happen much these days. Did you want to talk about something? She shook her head. Sometimes I come to the loft when I get lonesome for your dad. She gestured toward the hay window. It makes me feel good to look out there and see all we accomplished together. We were both very proud of this ranch. You should be, Mike said. I often think I'm the luckiest guy alive to be able to live here. And I'm lucky, blessed to have you here. Tears balanced on her lashes. This summer would not have been possible without you. Thanks. He put his arm around her. It's been tough. I can't help but think the wheels of the ranch would run smoother if Dad were alive. And Matt. He would keep things hopping. I bet he would. She laughed and wiped at her tears. I have to admit I feel cheated we didn't get to know him as an adult. He would have been such a fine young man, probably married with kids by now. Her brow furrowed. But that would make me a grandma, and I'm not sure I could handle being called Grandma Duncan. That name belonged to your grandmother. He chuckled. Well, obviously you don't have to worry about grandchildren for a while. He placed his hands on his thighs. Can I ask you something? Sure, anything. He looked down, rubbing his thumbs against his Levi's. How did Matt die? You were there. He turned to her. But I don't remember anything about it. All I know is I convinced Matt to let me drive on the highway. We had an accident, and I ended up in the hospital. I couldn't go to the funeral. He swallowed. I never got to say goodbye. She rubbed his back. I'm so sorry. I killed Matt, Mom. I killed my own brother. No, Mike, that's not how it was. She massaged a spot on her finger where her wedding ring had sat for so many years. A drunk named Gilbert Martin rammed into you with his pickup truck. As far as I know, he's still locked up. I was 12. I shouldn't have been driving. Plus, I knew we weren't supposed to be on the highway. As the older licensed person, Matt should have obeyed the law. And your father. In that sense, he was more at fault than you. She stood and walked to the edge of the loft. You may not know this, but I fought for years to forgive Martin. He killed my older son and severely injured my younger one. But one day I read an article that likened unforgiveness to a noxious weed that sends fat, ugly roots deep into our souls. Though nobody can see those roots, the blossoms of bitterness and the fruit of hatred are very apparent. Right then... I realized I was becoming a bitter, hateful woman, and I had to let it go. She turned to Mike. Your situation is different, but similar. 
I picture the root of guilt as having thousands of secondary roots that strangle the soul the way a root-bound plant chokes itself in a pot. The flower of guilt is a perpetual sense of shame, and the shriveled fruit is an impaired relationship with God. He promises to forgive us, but if we don't accept his forgiveness and let him remove the guilt, we will spiritually and emotionally wither up and die. Does that make sense? He nodded. It was true. He hadn't accepted God's forgiveness. She sat on the bale across from him. You and I lost the two people most precious to us. Remember when Pastor Chuck said troubles and losses in life are not meant to defeat us, but to develop us? Yeah. Well, we can't live in the past. We have to live in the present and look forward to what God has in store for us. As Dimple would say, when our cup of life is filled with choke cherries, it's time to make jelly. She took his hands. I am sorry, terribly sorry, for not helping you through your grief and guilt after Matt died, for being too caught up in my own grief to see yours. Will you forgive me? Of course. He never really blamed her or Dad, just himself. I forgive you for your part in the accident. God has already forgiven you. Now you need to forgive yourself and let go of the guilt. He hung his head. I should have talked with you years ago about all this. She smiled. We still have each other. Together we'll hang on to the whispering pines. We'll maintain everything your father and Matt worked so hard to create. And we'll build a future for ourselves. And my grandchildren. Deal? Deal. She stood. I better get back to the office. Will you be okay? I'll be fine. Thanks. Oh, by the way, I called Kate. She admitted she'd been attacked in the hospital, but she didn't offer details. Laura sighed. Maybe she'll explain later. Also, Marshall Thompson from our sanitation service called for you. I told him I'd have you call him back. He sounded anxious, although I can't imagine what could be so important about our garbage. They haven't missed any pickup days that I know of. Mike felt like a boxer staggering from a near knockout, hoping and praying the match was finally over, but instead he gets slammed back down, flat on his face. I'll call him. She brushed straw from her pants. We had another phone call. By the sound of her voice, he knew it had not been a good call. But what could be worse than the Marshall Thompson call? She sighed. It was your Aunt Judith. She's coming in July. Said she wants to be here for the fourth. Laura stared down the side of the loft into the belly of the barn. I should be happy to see my sister-in-law, but... Aunt Judith's comments at his dad's funeral often rang in Mike's head like a stuck car alarm. You should be pleased, Michael, darling, she'd intoned in her pseudo-cultured voice. Your father has such a beautiful view from this hillside. If ever he yearned to strangle a person, that was the moment. You should be pleased. You should be. Weeks later, her annual Christmas letter included a picture of his dad and his casket. His mom had read the caption to him. My dear departed brother, my final sibling out of six precious souls to pass. Today rides a heavenly range, herding cosmic cattle, leaving me to traverse this cold, cruel world without the comfort of a loved one by my side. So, her five kids and nineteen grandkids don't count as loved ones? 
Laura had crumpled all eleven single-space pages into tight balls and hurled them into the fireplace before he had a chance to see the photograph, which was fine by him. Aunt Judith had a way of getting under his skin, and she never missed an opportunity to remind him that he would never measure up to his brother. He kicked a bale, just the person to grind his nose into the mat. Now we have some kid quotes. I always enjoy these. Toby, looking out the living room window, said, That's silly. That man is mowing the snow. We know it as a snowblower. <laughs> Toby said, Fee, fi, fo, fum. I smell the blood of an Englishman. Brady said, Oh, yuck. Brady looked out the window at the sky one morning and said, The lights are on. <laughs> when he missed seeing something due to the foggy car window, he said, I can't see. I'm sick. And Toby, telling us about a dream he had, It's a movie in my head. <laughs> and Brady said, Mom, can I wake up? That must have been the unnap. <laughs> We'll finish with a reading from Erlene Klein's book titled The Ways of the Lord, A 365-Day Journey. This entry is called Loving My Enemies. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is from Matthew 5:44. When our three sons were small, we lived and worked on a huge cattle ranch in California. One of the older ranch hands lived in a trailer parked next to our yard. Alva was a cranky old man who always complained about things our sons did. The boys weren't naughty, but their fun-loving noise and activity grated on his nerves. The more he gave vent to his frustrations by complaining, the more I was in a quandary about what to do. I knew I should pray for Alva and love him, though in honesty I had to admit to the Lord that he was a difficult man to love. I also knew that love is best demonstrated by doing acts of kindness. So I searched for a way I could show Alva that, as a family, we all loved him. It was apple season, so I decided to bake an apple pie and send it over for Alva and his visiting grandsons. He was so touched by the gift of an apple pie that tears spilled down his cheeks. In the weeks that followed, Alva's complaints stopped, and we were able to live side by side in peace. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. Proverbs 16, 7. And that finishes this podcast. As always, thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. 
Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.